Well, I am blessed to be able to speak again. The only thing I don't like about speaking is we don't get to hear Daryl. He's always uh, such an amazing word from the Lord. Um, I do have some friends here. My friend Joe and Angela are here visiting from Calvary Chapel, San Diego. I saw them at a wedding yesterday. And my mother-in-law, Delma, and my sister-in-law from Chicago there, uh, Lisa, is here. So, yeah. So, today, I want to uh, do a message on grace. And uh, we're going to look at a lot of verses. And not going to read them all, but refer to them all. And I gave you notes. Did everybody get, get a note? I think we have enough for everybody. And uh, if you would bring those back Wednesday night, um, as we look at the study and discuss it some more, that would be a great idea. Well, Lord, speak to us now through the abundance of your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. In John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In John 1.16, And of his fullness we've all received. And grace for grace, or grace to grace, or grace upon grace is the one I like. That little preposition can be translated all those ways. Grace upon grace. So God came in human flesh, which is (laughs) mind-boggling that he would do it. But, of course, God can do anything, right? So he can do it. We know that. And he appeared. We saw the full nature of God in the Son. Now, we do know about John going to heaven. We know about Isaiah getting a glimpse of heaven. Paul, we think he went to heaven. And all of those guys were on their faces. (laughs) They were seeing the holiness of God, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah said, I'm an unclean man. I I just, I'm run to having seen heaven. And and John is overwhelmed seeing the sheriff saying, holy, holy, holy. And and he fell on his face more than once, um, feeling so unworthy to be in the presence of God. So had Jesus come and been just overwhelming in his human appearance of holiness, we, we wouldn't have gotten much farther. Jesus could have appeared, and the chief thing we saw was his purity, his righteousness. But that's not what we see. Jesus came, and overwhelmingly, the thing that struck everybody is that he was full of Grace. Grace is just an incredible kindness, a heart of mercy, of forgiveness, of understanding. He didn't see sinful man and look down his nose at him like the Pharisees would do. We don't see Jesus having a problem with people's sin. The woman caught in the act of adultery. It wasn't in his heart to chew her out and throw a rock at her and spit on her and and tell her, you know, you got to do better than this. You got one life and you're messing it up. He didn't see the woman at the well and and just say, 
you know, this is useless. I'll talk to the mayor or something. I'm not going to talk to some outcast woman who's can't keep a husband, and now she's just given up on marriage after five marriages, just living with a guy. But Jesus was full of grace. He sought out that woman at the well. He let her know that if she would believe in this very moment, she wouldn't just have water out of a well, but she would have living water unto eternal life. That woman caught an act of adultery. There was no condemnation in his heart whatsoever. We see in the Arab cultures today, some girl will be forced to marry at 11 years old and divorced by 14. She can't do anything else in those Arab cultures but be a prostitute. They can't own anything. They can't work. The family rejects them. They're on this, there is no other option. And, and, uh, and so we don't know the condition of this, this woman and her situation. But yet, what do we see? Jesus was fiery and angry at what? Self-righteousness. He hated people thinking themselves holy enough, righteous enough, pure enough in their own opinion of themselves. And as they compared themselves amongst the lowly, the struggling class, they would look down their nose at them. They would make them feel lesser by being in their presence. I'm a holy Sadducee, Pharisee, Sanhedrin, and and you are a guy from Galilee who, and we all know our sins, don't we? I don't, did anybody sin this last week? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. You don't need to. If you didn't sin this week, raise your hand and come on up here. Because we need to hear about you. We're almost moment by moment aware that we are not holy as God is holy. That our righteousness before God is filthy rags. And even if I in my own estimation, do good for a week or a month or even a whole year. I feel like I've lived the holiest life I've ever lived. I know that it's not sufficient to stand in the presence of God, right? It says there in verse 14 that God came in human flesh, which is amazing, through a virgin birth, which is a miracle, And when people saw him as a child, saw him in his years growing up, they didn't feel condemnation. They didn't feel not good enough to be around him. Jesus was full of grace. And of his fullness, we all received grace upon grace. Now, that's an impossibility because in the word grace, it's all that you need and more. Where your sin abounds, what? His grace abounds more. It's it's an automatic thing. It's going to give you what you need and then give you too much. I need need a little mercy and he just showers mercy on us. I need forgiveness and he doesn't just forgive that sin that we're aware of. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness that we don't, we're not even aware of yet. Because if he showed us, 
our depths of our sinfulness, like Judas, we'd go out and hang ourselves, I think. But he just gives a little bit of insight here and there to help us to realize how much we need his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his forgiveness. And then it says truth. I'm glad that Jesus didn't just come telling the truth because it would have wiped us out. You want to hear the truth about you without grace? You want to hear the truth about anybody without looking through the prism of grace first? Jesus said you'll know the truth and that truth will set you free. But you can't handle the truth without knowing first that before I tell you the truth, that you are a sinner and that all of us, there's only one way to escape our sinful, wicked condition, which is deserving to go to hell, the hottest part of hell, for the eternity. We, we, we not, are not going to hear that until first we hear of God's grace. I love you. Before I even tell you you're a sinner, I'm prepared to forgive you. <laughs> Before I, I reveal to you the depths of your depravity, I want you to know ahead of time, I've got mercy upon you. Now, the man you've been living with is not your husband. <laughs> and you've been married five times before. What, did the woman feel condemned by Jesus, revealing? How did you know that? You're, you're, you're some kind of prophet or something. How could you know this? We never met. But she didn't feel condemned. Matter of fact, she felt encouraged. Because he told her before that, you ask of me water, and I'll give you water that will gush forth to everlasting life. She went in to tell everybody in town, not about this condemning Pharisee rabbi, but come and hear this man who told everything about me. He knows everything about me. And I feel encouraged. <laughs> I feel accepted. I, I feel received. Do, do you get it? God came in human flesh. And what was the whole picture? It was just first grace, grace, grace upon grace. Of his fullness, we all received grace upon grace. And yes, he told us the truth. Yes, he pointed out we were sinners. Yes, he pointed out that we are all worthy to go to hell unless there is a way of salvation. But he let us know. I am going to make a way. Now, here's the truth. But grace in and of itself is more than you need. So we come with our little five-gallon bucket. This is my analogy of it. And we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need some mercy. I need some forgiveness. Uh, Please be kind to me because I feel so beat up by myself and everybody in the world. And the Lord says, oh, you need some grace, do you? And you turn around and he's got this fire hose aimed at your five-gallon bucket. And you're doing this right here, going, whoa. And he's like, you're trying to get that thing filled up. And before you know it, you're out in the middle of a pond. You're having to tread water. Your five-gallon bucket's not doing any good out there. And then the Lord said, uh, you shouldn't have come unless you're prepared, not just to get grace, but grace upon grace. 
and you look to the end of the pond and there's this wall opening up, this giant dam and it's coming. Look to the north and the south and the east and the west and all these dams are filling up and, and there's this torrent. You're trying to tread water and, and before you know it, you can't see land at all anymore. And Jesus is there laughing. The angels are laughing. And, and the Lord is saying, ah, I love grace. And I love to give grace. And so when we go to the Lord, we know we're going to get all his love of his fullness. Now, God didn't ask us to be as kind as the kindest person we know, did he? He didn't ask us to be merciful to the greatest amount of mercy we've ever thought of. The Lord said, be like me, right? And his mercies are without limit, right? His forgiveness knows no end. And Jesus doesn't know how to be anything but kind. That's just his nature. And so when we go to him each time of his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. We saw him. He came into human flesh to save man, and he was full of grace. And then secondly, truth. The thing that often took people back when Jesus taught. We know he said, man, he doesn't teach this dry message like the scribes and the Pharisees quoting the Talmud and the Mishnah and, and, and everybody else. What, what are we taken back by? It tells us in Luke 4.22, So they all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceed out of his mouth. The people marveled going, he's just so gracious he's so loving he's so kind when i hear him speak i am drawn to the lord when i hear him talk it's like i want to repent and 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 be right with god and my heart is full of hope when i hear jesus speak paul says that's the same thing that should happen with us in colossians 4 6 let your speech always be with grace, right? Seasoned with salt. And then God give us wisdom on the truth part. We may know how to answer each one. So first we come with this grace upon grace in our own self. And now, Lord, how can I love on this person? How can I be kind to this person? How can I be merciful to this person? How can I show them the fullness of our God Grace upon grace. David, uniquely in human history, was a man after God's own heart who did all of God's will. Now, the thing is, if you study the life of David, he's a man who sinned a lot. (laughs) Big sins. Cost thousands of lives. And um, you wonder... What was it in the life of David that that Jesus said, I'm going to come and return. And for eternity, 
you're going to see me sit on the throne of David. Isn't that that crazy? That the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God Almighty, wants to call his throne the name after a man. Now we're going to see in a minute in Hebrews 4 that that throne of God is grace, right? Jesus sits upon the throne of grace. And with David, we see that heart of Jesus. Do you guys remember the story when he was firmly stationed as the king? He built his palace in Jerusalem, the capital city. And now having all the wealth and the power, what does he want to do with it? I want to, I want to be gracious. I want to find somebody who, who is the least deserving person. Now, when a king normally came in, he killed all the family, even babies. Anybody that might, a year or four years from now, threaten his throne. But we know that story in 2 Samuel 9 about Mephibosheth. David says to all of Saul's guys, there's got to be somebody left alive from the lineage of Saul, this man who was incredibly evil, this man who chased David down and, and said all kinds of things about David, him being rebellious and trying to kill Saul and all these things that were totally not true. And then the last act of Saul was talking to a witch to try to figure out the future. But yet, what does David say? I want you to go wherever you got to go, even outside the boundaries of Israel, if necessary, and just see if there's anybody from the lineage of Saul that I might show him mercy. Well, the servant said, well, we, we do know a guy, Ziba says, the number one guy for Saul, but you don't want me to get him because he can offer you nothing in return. He's lame in his feet. He can't walk at all. And his crippledness looks sort of, well, it just sort of depresses you. And he'll never be able to march as one of your soldiers. He won't even be able to stand next to you when you give a speech. And David said, go get that guy. And Mephibosheth came to David and fell before him and said, what do you want with me? I'm a dead dog. In this culture, dogs were bad, period, even when they were living. <laughs> but a dead dog, nobody wanted to mess with that thing. And, and David said, I'm going to restore everything that Saul ever owned. Isn't that crazy? David could have taken those lands and all those cattle and all those houses and all those servants and everything and collected it and made it his. That was what he was supposed to do. David said, I'm going to start my own wealth on different fields, different lands, different houses. And all of the predecessor, this guy who chased me for decades, tried to kill me, I'm going to give all his land, lacking nothing, to you, Mephibosheth. But on top of that, you don't need any wealth. Because I want you to live in Jerusalem as one of my own sons. And I want you to eat at my table of royalty. And there in 2 Samuel 9, verse 13, so it says, Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem. And something it says several times in this chapter, 
for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both his feet. He never had anything to offer David. And David gave him a great wealth and said, you can't ever spend it here. You're going, to have, you're going to be one of the wealthiest guys, if not the wealthiest, even more than David at that point. But I'm going to take care of every one of your needs. And the last thing we hear was, this guy's lame. <laughs> he is never going to stand for you, David. He's never going to be a hero for you, David. And David was blessing this man with grace and love and kindness and mercy. He was worthy of death. Everybody would have counseled David, well, kill that guy. But David said no, and he pours out this grace. We see another example of this. We all know well the prodigal son story, right? (laughs) I mean, you can be rude to your parents, but this has got to be like the top rude thing ever. I can't wait for you to die, Dad. So whatever you are going to give me once you're dead, I want it now. I just don't know how... Any parent wouldn't want to, you know, smack that kid upside the head. But the father gives it to him. And we know that he's just a foolish, foolish boy. He goes off to a foreign country. He loses everything. And then on top of that, there's a drought. And as a Jewish boy feeding pigs, I mean, this is low as you can go. And he was so hungry, he was thinking, should I feed the pigs or should I eat that slop myself? And he came to his senses and said, my dad's gracious. Now, he had no idea. He's thinking, you know, there's no way I'll ever be called his son again. There's no way I'll ever be a servant in the house serving him. But maybe I could be one of those servants that live out in the barn next to the cows, the lowliest of servants. They at least have something to eat. They don't have to be around pigs. It's Israel. And so he realizes grace, mercy, forgiveness. I'm going to dad. And what do we find about the dad? Every day he had hope looking down the street until one day he saw a shadowy figure coming towards him. And he recognized that. The only time we ever see God in a hurry in the entire Bible is here. He starts running towards that son. And when he finds him, the son tries to give the speech. I'm not worthy to be your son and make me the lowliest servant. And the father interrupts him and starts hugging on him. I don't think he smelled very good. I don't think he looked very good. And what does the father say? Before anybody else sees you, get him a robe. I don't want them to see my son in this poor condition. Give him a ring. Give him sandals. And go quickly. Get everybody in all the region to come. We're going to have a giant barbecue. For my son who is lost is found, who is dead is alive. We see the father with this grace. And you can imagine as Jesus was telling such a story. These Jews had never heard anything like this. 
They would have been thinking in this story, now this is where the father, you know, folds his arms and rejects his son. And, and, and there all the Pharisees are going, yeah, you got to be righteous. Yeah, he blew it. And now rub his face in it. He made his bed lie in it. Yeah. But yet Jesus tells a story that blows these Pharisees, these self-righteous people's minds. And all the poor, all the fishermen and farmers hearing Jesus speak were just going, there's hope for me. There, there's, a, there's a gospel here that, that can save me. But the real part of this story is actually the second half. The older son comes in from working from a distant field. And he shows up and there's the lighted torches in the backyard and there's barbecuing going on and all of these hundreds of people in their nice celebrative outfits. And, and the servants tell him, um, your dad's having a party for your brother. And of course, he didn't know the full condition until later. But then he's just angry. He won't go inside. He won't eat. He won't drink. He won't be a part of this. And the dad comes out to him and says, Son, why are you so angry? And he says, How can you honor a person who, who squandered all of his inheritance, went off to a foreign country, spent all his money on prostitutes and harlots and, and, and living this sinful life? Hold it. How would the older brother know that? He didn't know that. He just knew what he would do if he had a bag full of money. So even though on the outward, on the outward, the older son was looking righteous, we, re, we God reveals in this story here that his heart was just as wicked as a younger brother. He just didn't do it. it he was doing it in his heart. <laughs> he just wasn't doing it physically. And there that story ends. In verse 32, um, he says to the older brother, it is right that we should make merry. In Luke fifteen thirty-two, it is right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So think about this a minute. Jesus receiving us into heaven. And you're here today saying, I'm trying, but I'm a failure. <laughs> I, I just, every day I just say today I want to live holy, I want to be righteous. And we fall, we stumble. And then the rapture's going to come. No, give me another day. <laughs> Don't be afraid, guys. But I'm going to get raptured up before the Lord and I'm going to be in these smelly garments. Jude tells us that. In the, in the little tiny epistle Jude, he actually says, some are going to be snatched out of the fire despising the very garments they wear. They smell of their sin. They smell of feeding pigs. <laughs> and yet, what do we see here? That when we'll be standing before the Lord, he's going to say, you're righteous, not because of how you live, but because you're my child. Amen. You believed on me and I received you as my child. You're lacking a robe. Here's a robe of righteousness. You're lacking a ring. You're lacking shoes. 
I'm going to clothe you and now enter into the joy of my kingdom. That's how we're all going to make it, right? I don't think there's one person that's going to walk into heaven going, I'm already righteous, but go ahead and give me that righteous garment, Jesus. I'm already whole. I'm already this doing really well. I've got a ring on every finger, but go ahead. I'll figure out where to slip that one on somewhere. We are all going to heaven less than righteous in ourselves, right? We're all going to go to heaven. If not saying it, we thought it. If not doing it, it was in the imagination of our hearts. And what do we discover? Jesus is ready for us as well as all of us. There's nobody that's going to be in heaven saying, praise me, praise me. Right? Spurgeon said, You're, everybody in heaven will know he's there. Not because he's the holiest guy. He'll be on the back row. It just said, everybody will know because I'm the one singing the loudest to God's grace. Amen. So what do we have? In our hands. Jesus came. Holy, 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 no. Righteous, 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 no. Pure. So different. God is so righteous and holy. He is so abundantly different from sinful man. But that is not what we got. Yes, Jesus was righteous and holy and pure. But when he revealed himself in human flesh, us Sinful people felt like we just wanted to run into his arms. That whatever our sin is, he has grace that's going to abound more, right? Whatever weakness we have, that he's going to comfort us and say, let me help you with that. Little children, people with leprosy, a woman with the hemorrhage of blood, an unclean person, all these lepers and unclean and sinful people, they felt drawn to Jesus. And they would touch, I don't want to touch him, I'm too unworthy, but I'll just touch the very bottom of his garment. Jesus, is there any hope for me? Remember we just saw in Matthew, that leper. Jesus did what? He touched that leper. They all knew it. They weren't, they weren't afraid. They didn't feel ashamed. For the first time, I want to touch a rabbi rather than run away from a rabbi. For the first time, I want to press in on this one speaking truth rather than just going, oh man, I'm such a sinner. So what do we have? Paul called it this in Acts 20, 24. He says, in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to you the gospel of what? Of the grace of God. That's our gospel. Isn't that awesome? That we are to go into the world and of Jesus' fullness, we now can proclaim that fullness. Wherever you are, whoever you are, of Jesus' fullness. Well, what's the catch? Tell me the truth. Not yet. (laughs) I need you to first understand God's mercy and love and acceptance and forgiveness and that his whole purpose is not to seek and to save the top 10% righteous people. 
Jesus is out to seek and to save who? The lost. As, as Moody used to say, Jesus sought out to the uttermost, the guttermost. <laughs> That's our message. Jesus isn't going out looking for the most healthy spiritual people. Jesus is here for the sick and the sickest of people. And that's why we're here. Somehow we got that. We, we said, I'm a sinner. I'm unworthy. I've messed up my whole life. I only got a few years left and I just, I'll probably mess that up too. That's, that's the truth. And we had no hope. We were without God and without hope. But what happened? We got the grace somehow. Somehow through the midst of it, we heard the grace we probably were soaking in the truth and the truth was depressing us and hurting us and, and causing us to want to not go to God but to just harden our hearts and be angry with God and run the opposite direction. But yet the grace. In Titus 2.11 it says this, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to who? To all men. You know, the Bible tells us in John 16, the Holy Spirit's in the world convicting men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit's doing the work for you already. Matter of fact, I think the Holy Spirit's probably doing more of the work than, than we realize. And so when we show up, they already know the truth because God's Holy Spirit has been convicting them of that truth, of their sinful condition. But how will they believe unless one goes? How will they hear unless somebody speaks? What's it say in Romans 10? How beautiful on the mountain to God are the feet of those who spread the what? The good news, the gospel. Grace is good news, isn't it? I mean, the other part, the truth, isn't so good. <laughs> you need to receive the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. If you die and all you have is your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own holiness, you are in serious trouble. Because to go to heaven, you've got to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And there is no man, from the first man Adam created, to the last man sin, whoever that is, nobody is going to make it in our own righteousness. That's, that's the truth. But God's Spirit's already telling him about the truth. We go out and we have the gospel of grace. God is here to forgive you. God is here to receive you. God loves you. But I'm a leper. Touch him. I've got a hemorrhage. Touch him. I've been married five times before, and the man I'm living with is not my husband. Ask, let me give you water unto everlasting life, even in that condition. This is how salvation comes. You guys know this verse very, very well, right? Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. So here's the truth. We have to have faith in that grace. You see, this is where the devil and your own wicked heart says, yes, God forgave the prodigal son, but I'm worse than the prodigal son. Yes, God cleansed the leper, but I got worse than leprosy. Yes, God forgave that woman at the well who'd been married five times before, and she, the man she's living with isn't her husband. But man, I, I wish I had that good a sense. So God's grace may 
reach 99% of the people, but I do not have the faith that that door of grace is open to me anymore. I've asked God to forgive me. I told him I'd never do it again, and I did it. That happened a thousand times, at least. I don't think he's going to open that door again because he knows I'll fail him again. No, that's, that's just right from the very pit of hell. We are saved by grace. But we've got to have faith in that grace. And it's never going to be of ourselves. You see, a lot of people think, okay, God gives you grace. That's a free ticket into Disneyland there. Here you go. But once you're inside, you've got to prove yourself now worthy that I ever let you inside. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We, we weren't righteous when God gave us grace. And guess what happens a day later after we get grace? Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I, I don't do. I'm schizophrenic. I need some medication. What did he say? He just said, I just find that in me, even a born-again believer, that in my flesh, it, it's, it's perfectly sinful. It's not, it's not getting better. My mind is getting more corrupt. My heart is getting harder. My desire for sin is actually growing in this human flesh. Years ago, I asked uh, Gil Irwin, at the time he was in his 50s and I was in my 20s, and I said, well, you know, Gil, when, when do you get there as a Christian where you're just not just being pummeled by all the lusts of the flesh? And he said, Brian, when, when are you tempted the most? Isn't it when you're not feeling very good? Isn't it when you're weak? Isn't it when you are just sort of out of energy and your body and your brain can't find it as well? I said, oh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. He goes, once you get to 50, you feel that way every day. <laughs> so believe me, there, there is no hope. There's no light at the end of the tunnel other than heaven and being in our new bodies. But it's not of ourself. It's not of ourself before we receive the grace. It's not of ourself a day later, a week later, ten years later. My testimony is going to be the same. Where my sin abounds, his grace abounds more. That righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up seven times. Interesting, the proverb says that he's still a righteous man even though he falls seven times. Shouldn't it be the righteous man who falls seven times, we're going to quit calling him righteous. And even though he's getting up, he's just a good man from now on. Sort of good. No. He said he's the righteous man falls. Do you hear that? The righteous man falls. But he has faith in the grace. And he takes the faith and he puts in the grace and he gets back up. Saying the things I don't want to do, I do the things I do want to do. I, I, I can't do, oh wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Here's the answer. Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Jesus. We've got Jesus, guys. God came in human flesh. Because there was something about his nature that no man could reveal to us. No angel could demonstrate it to us. Why did God come into human flesh? So we could get the very core of his nature. 
That we would just be flooded grace upon grace. Of His fullness we would receive. And now we can have faith. Yes, He's holy, He's righteous, He's pure. But I have faith in His grace. And that His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. That when I am weak and at my weakness, what happens? He is strong for us. I think of those two thieves on the cross. Now, these to have a thief put to death, even in the Roman Empire, was a, a pretty crazy thing. But these two thieves were completely incorrigible. They were, no matter how many times they got arrested, no matter how many times they got beaten, no matter what you did to them, as soon as they got free, they were going to go still again. And the Roman Empire finally said, the only way to stop these thieves is kill them. And we want to humiliate them to all those other thieves out there to, to, to realize they need to stop stealing. But if you pair, compare all the Gospels, as Jesus is carrying that horizontal part of the cross through the city as they're pulling out his beard and spitting on him, those thieves as they're marching to their own death, are joining in with the crowd, mocking Jesus, saying hurtful and evil things to Jesus. And even on the cross, I mean, you're going to your own death. I mean, I think your knees would be wobbling and you'd be consumed about thinking about yourself. But even on the cross, these guys are mocking Jesus. Hey, physician, heal yourself. And the one thief just kept a hard heart. The other thief, before the cross, on the cross, blaspheming Jesus, he begins to see Jesus and listening to him. Jesus isn't concerned about himself, but his mother. Take care of my mom. Jesus isn't concerned about himself. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus is speaking these words And what happens to that thief? He gets the grace. Even though I've sinned all my life and I was sinning on the way to the cross and I'm sinning on the cross. I believe that this guy's grace, even though I will never make one step of obedience, I won't live one day to help my fellow man. I won't live a year to try to do a bunch of good works to make up for my wasted life. But even though, not of myself, not of any works I'll ever do, I believe that he'll forgive me and take me to his heaven. What faith! I mean, we're talking serious faith here, aren't we? And he looks at Jesus, he doesn't know how to pray. He's not a religious man. But he looks at Jesus and he says, if you compare all the Gospels, Lord, when you come into your kingdom? Future tense. He believed Jesus was going to die, but raise again. Remember me. That's a pretty bad sinner's prayer, isn't it? You guys know there's no sinner prayers in the Bible. It just says, believe in your heart. This man did. And confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. 
Lord Jesus, when? Future tense. You come into your kingdom. You're saved. He didn't even need the last part, remember me. And what did Jesus say on that cross? Today, just grace. Just grace. Oh, now you want to repent. Oh, you think I should let you in heaven with all the good people that I'm getting ready to take there? We're not very compatible. I don't think I want to spend eternity with you. What did Jesus say? Just words of grace. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. This man has no good works to his account. He has no ability to do anything. He's not going to live any longer. But we are saved by grace through faith in the grace. It's not of ourselves. It is a what? Gift of God. Do we get this? This is the gospel that we have. And this is why it says in Romans 1.17, For in the, right, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As is written, the just shall live by faith. So we need to have faith in the grace to be saved, but then we need to have grace in the faith the first day, the second day, three weeks from now, ten months from now. We've got to keep having faith in the grace. And where my sin abounds, what? His grace abounds more. I fall seven times. I need to get up how many times? All seven times because God's grace is sufficient. I have faith. But if I were God, I'd throw me away. You hear the condemnation of Satan, the condemnation of your own mind. Maybe the harshness of your own family against you. But we've got to keep having faith in the grace of God. Paul in Romans 5, he says this, it is into this faith and to the grace, he says in 5.2, in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So you say, well, it's, I had that faith in God's grace as a sinner, but now I've been in the Lord 10 years and I'm weak as I was before I got saved. I should know better. I think God is up there going, look, you're not a kindergarten anymore. You're in high school. You should be able to read that. You should be able to do that math. But we're perfectly weak. What did Paul say about his body? My body is sold unto sin, unto death. My hand's never going to get more righteous. Not until it's transfigured into metamorphosized into a brand new body with the Lord. My mouth you know, it's a slippery tongue, just keeps slipping out with mean things, hurtful things. So we learn now as believers, Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16, probably some of our favorite verses in the Bible. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What confession? This one. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet him and only him, without sin. Let us therefore come, what? Boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. That's the faith we need to have. We're coming to the Lord and 
and, and we're weak and we're sinful and we know more about him than we've ever known. So we know he's holy and we want to be holy as he is holy. We know, we know he is righteous and we want to walk in purity and righteousness, but yet we stumble in many ways. We fall in many ways. But yet he says, don't give up. Don't throw yourself away. God, God can't have that much grace. I, I just got to check out because I'm just making a mess of this Christianity thing. And it's hard for me to believe that the Lord is really going to take me to heaven when it really comes down to it because I am just way too sinful. No, we have a high priest. Whatever you're going through, in one way or form, he went through it in his flesh. He knows that overwhelming sense of just wanting to cross that line or say those words or do that deed. But unlike us, he didn't cross the line, but he knows how relentless and wicked and weak our body is. So we need to have faith in this sympathetic high priest that he is going to understand and he has experienced it himself. And therefore, don't come in. Oh, God, I'm so unworthy. I'm such a worm. I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't know why you don't just throw me away. Does that, does that please the Lord? Imagine if your kids did that. They want to borrow the car. I, I can't even believe you let me live here in this house, you know. I can't believe you give me any food at all the way I act. And, and I, they're on their knees sweeping, and I'm so unworthy to be called your child, but, you know, can I borrow the car keys? Would that please you as a parent? Think about it. I think it would grieve you, wouldn't it? God knows everything about the weakness of our body. It says he knows our frame. He knows we're but dust. So what does he do? He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. Isn't that awesome? That's what he wants. And so we need to come boldly. What's boldly mean? Arrogant? No, faith. I'm coming in because God wants me to rejoice by faith in his nature. So we come in and say, God, yes. You know, Satan often says, you know, you're the biggest lemon on the tree. (laughs) You're the biggest sinner that's ever walked the planet Earth. Satan, accuser of our brother, he's not wrong, is he? So we say to Satan, you're absolutely right, but I'm not going to be standing before your throne. I'm going to go before the throne of grace. Your own brain prosecutes you, and you're all 12 members on the jury, and, and your, your own body is you know, prosecuting you, and you are guilty. But yet, we're not going to stand before our throne, are we? We're standing before that throne of grace to give us mercy and what? Grace. For our time of need, which is pretty much 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is something that God wants us to know that we know that we know. Jonah knew that, right? That's why we learn at the very end of the book of Jonah, that little four-chapter book, the guy who got swallowed by a fish, the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh, to the Assyrians, because they were exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah were. 
There's no way this society can be helped. I've just got to destroy them with brimstone from heaven, fiery brimstone, and just make their great civilization ash. There's nothing more I can do for them. But as the last-ditch effort, Jonah, I'm picking you. I I hate the Assyrians. I'm bitter towards them. Most believe they killed his parents probably, maybe raped his family in front of him as a child. Because they, they, did, they did, within his lifetime, conquer or come in and, and uh, fight against Israel. So very possibly he ended up being an orphan by these people. But he hated them. And as we know, God got his way, spit him out of the fish. And, and there's Jonah going, and he's going as fast as he can. It's a three days journey. In 40 days comes destruction. In 40 days comes destruction. That's all he said. And what happened? They repented the best way they knew how, sort of like you would for a funeral, sackcloth and ashes. And it was enough. Pretty lousy repentance, if you ask me. And Jonah sets up on the hill waiting and just, then what does he say in Jonah 1, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He became angry because God didn't destroy it. The 40th day came and went. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this why I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you disgust me. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant loving kindness, and one who relents from doing harm. I knew, I know you, a people that should be destroyed, by, like Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, I knew if they showed the tiniest, tiniest inkling of repentance, you would call it off. That's why I'm mad at you. I want you to be gracious to me, be merciful to me, loving kindness to me, but not to people I hate. But boy, Jonah had to learn the hard way. He had to wrestle through a, a bitter issue. We see in Psalms 106, we don't have time to go into it today, but the children of Israel over and over again were taking their babies and sacrificing them to the demon gods of the land that they had moved into. And then they would end up being held captive. They'd be slaves. God would send them a judge, release them. They'd come back in under the blessings of God, and they would become an adulterer in their heart and they would start worshiping these pagan gods and start sacrificing their babies again. Finally, it got so bad that God relented in his anger. He reminded in their covenant. They were so far away from God, they didn't remember Moses, Joshua. They didn't remember anything that God had spoken through the Bible. So God sent them a prophet to remind them of who they are, what the covenant was, how God wants to bless them, and then he forgave them. This happened over and over again. I've had people I've talked to, I can remember back in college, there was a guy, I was working at a pharmacy, and he said, he was looking at the books, and I suggested Hal Lindsey's book, The Great Late Planet Earth. And I started talking to him about the Lord, and he just said, I mean, he was being really touched. He looked like a mafia guy, like from New York, he was dressed like that. I think he, he was very dark spirit about him. Could have been an assassin for the mafia or something. But I start telling him grace, and he starts getting angrier and angrier. And he finally said, 
For your own safety, don't say another word. You have no idea who I am or what I've done. And if you did, you would not be talking to me. When people say that now, I say, you took your brand new one week old baby and burned it alive, worshiping a pagan God. They look at me going, what? Are you nuts? I didn't kill any baby. I didn't burn any baby alive, worshiping worshiping Satan. What's wrong with you? Okay. Because if you had, God would forgive you. And so we see that he didn't once or twice or three times, but many, many times forgave them for the depths of their wickedness, even though they were the chosen people of God. Well, I'm going to have to wrap it up here this morning. So much more to share. But I want you guys to understand that the final word in the Bible is about grace. You know what the final verse of the Bible is? Revelation twenty two twenty one, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What's the last thing Jesus wants to say to planet Earth? Let that grace be abounding in you. You receive me and then of Jesus' fullness of grace upon grace. Live out that life. We have a good news. We have a great, the gospel of grace. And then in Peter, it says, not only are we waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, but what are we waiting for? He says, our whole hope, all our hope is in the revelation of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1.13 and then fully upon the grace of God we are waiting. Isn't that crazy? And then what are we going to do in heaven? Ephesians 2, verse 6 and 7 says, God's just going to constantly reveal his grace to us over eternity. And we're going to keep seeing it more and more, the riches of his grace and his kindness. That's That's really, he's wrapping it up. Kindness, grace reveals his kindness. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word here today. And if there's anyone here today or listening by any of the social media, God's speaking to you right now. And he's saying to you right now, receive me. Receive the gospel of grace. Receive the revelation of almighty God in his fullness, grace upon grace, and have hope. And if you're here today and you've beaten yourself up and you're in the doghouse and you've been just sort of living in the, the, the valley, a dark valley, the big black cloud hanging over you and thinking that uh, I need to live a good life for a week or two or three or four or a year or two before I can start feeling good about myself as a Christian, rebuke that in the name of Jesus. Take those thoughts and take them into captivity of Christ. Pull down those strongholds. How is Jesus looking at you through grace? How is Jesus looking at your sinfulness, your weaknesses? He's sympathizing. He knows how hard it is to fight temptation, 
Things you don't want to do, you do. Things you do want to do, you don't do. We, he knows what it's like to have that wretched flesh. <laughs> but he's here to help you in your time of need. With all the grace, all the mercy. By faith, Lord, I put my trust in you this day. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.